have any with the period we have questions may have arisen just from your meditations uh, over the day questions may have arisen from aspects or things that you've reflected <coughs> upon um, from what you've uh, uh, listened to from one to one just from the flow and the unfoldment uh, of the day so if there are any uh, questions on the closing morning of the retreat I'll uh, endeavour to cover a number of those questions about the daily life situation various forms of information all of that stuff so sometimes with the Dharma teaching uh, practices, experiences, uh, texts, etc., etc. Anyone has anything you uh, like to ask? Yeah, you're invited, and I'll endeavour to uh, uh, respond to the question. Yes, please. Um. <coughs> My question is about hunger for the truth. Can you hear the far end? Um, question is about hunger for the truth. Mm-hmm. And um, where where it comes from? Mm. And um, it it often it often seems to relate to the amount of giving up yes. one has to do, for instance. You yourself Right, the question is in twofold. Two aspects to the question. One is, uh, what happened to me? Why did I become a monk? And uh, explore that uh, path and journey. And the other, where does this uh, hunger that some have and some have very, very strongly for for the truth? Just spending a couple of minutes uh, talking to one of the staff people just on this hunger for the truth just a moment ago uh, just on the first point, like an, um, a number of other people this is going back some years now into the uh, 1960s of being on the road making the overland journey to the uh, east and living a rather free way of life living out of the backpack etc. travelling through whatever it was, 30 countries or so and having a sense as others have done as well of 
privilege and joy and freedom of uh, exploring uh, out, uh, outwardly that journey. And then it thought right and ripe to make another kind of journey uh, inwardly. So there are points in time in the making of the sacrifice, uh, in the giving up of things, which comes in, my experience anyway, and perhaps yours too, comes in waves. So in other words, uh, one moves on from this, moves on from a certain lifestyle, wanderer, traveller, and a newspaper reporter to help uh, freelancing, to help make a bit of money to stay on the road. And then there are points in time where the giving up really starts to take place. And that uh, shows itself in the wish to explore or to do something else, etc. And no one, of course, ties one or imprisons one in, into the monastery or, or wherever. It's one's own decision, it's one's own uh, intention. So out of that comes what people call sacrifice, uh, letting go, learning to do without and live the absolute minimum existence that one actually possibly uh, can, absolute down to the basics. And out of that something goes on inside the being and the austerity of it which uh, helps bring forth, I hope, some kind of understanding. We, um, uh, uh, in a kind of phase or uh, period here where the model, and that Shaila at the back of the hall and I were speaking about this as well a few moments ago, is actually having to change and it's presenting new kinds of challenges. And what I mean by that is that in coming uh, here it's very much a kind of a reflection, reverberation we might say, of a kind of monastic setting insofar as the silence is appreciated, the stillnesses are appreciated, the renunciation of keeping life very, very uh, simple is uh, acknowledged, and a great deal of usual comforts and pleasures uh, we are doing, doing without. And the way of the Dharma that is taking root in the West is these rather short-term injections of the Dharma in a very full-on way, morning, noon and night. Some people of you here, of course, for a few days. Some have been here a few months. I had one-to-one person uh, with one person today who's been here for more than nine months. Not so the length of time is a factor in all, all, all of this, but as you just said there, Jane, it's keeping the, the uh, interest and the hunger. What is the truth? What, 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 what does that mean? And keeping the spirit of that alive in oneself will nourish and encourage, despite the difficulties, the renunciation. That we don't want to lose our life in the forces of wanting and hating. That we want to discover something which is not uh, entrapped in all of that. And as I was just mentioning to the person and the uh, manager in the staff room a, a moment or two ago, Sometimes with truth, we kind of begin to realize and sense and appreciate 
that language is not going to be what the truth is. That we begin to recognize and appreciate the limitations of words, the limitations of constructed views, and all the definitions that we give for life, whether religious, spiritual, philosophical, uh, scientific, or, or whatever. It won't really, the language won't really tell us what truth is and the way that it abides no matter what happens. That it's something indestructible about its nature. We might call it truth, we might call it God, we might call it liberation, freedom, etc. So, that nourishment, that hunger, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat, when we're not, doesn't matter where we live, monastery or in the city, it's not important. Not clutching onto when there's a lot less of that going on. That is the renunciation. When we can feel in our heart, I, I, I don't have to run after him, or I don't have to run after this or that, I don't have to be so involved in uh, what happens in the future, etc. That, that is the renunciation. And when one's feeling and sensing that, that is going on. And the role that we have is much less important. It doesn't matter whether we're uh, work we do so much, or the role, if we're a monk, or a layperson, or a nun, or a layperson. I don't think that really matters. It's a kind of identity. It can be a helpful and useful one. But somehow, that quest, that wonder, what, what, what's truth? What liberates? And it's the truth which liberates us. When we touch on the truth, will the, the very confirmation of it, the only confirmation that a person has touched truth is that one feels more free, deeply. That's the only way that we'll know, because life is free. Look at it, the sheer diversity of it keeps revealing to us the, the freedom of it. Freedom to embrace the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the ugly, the big and the, the small, the subtle and the, the gross. Look at it. How free it is. So, something of truth is revealed to us. When it touches us, one feels that same freedom. The freedom which allows all this, and much more, which our eyes and ears will never even know about. So, it's keeping that alive, so that we don't settle for the limited. And what our eyes offer us is the limited. This and that, this and that. Where it is offers us is the is the, is, the, is the limited. You know, when after listening to the music uh, yesterday evening, I, I, somehow I don't, judging by a couple of the notes, I don't think there'll be a stampede down to Woolworth to get the CD. But, uh, etc. It's unlimited, whatever it might be. So, so there's the acknowledgement of the limited, there's the recognition uh, of it. But truth, doesn't have a limit to it. What, what ob- I, object for eye does, object for ear does, object for nose does, object for tongue does, object for touch does. All has a limit. All, all is limited. Limited by conditions. Limited by the moment. Limited by the size, shape, colour. Truth doesn't know this. And when we see the limitations and we acknowledge it, then what, what is the truth? It has no limit. We realise that words can't do it for us. Then some other way of being can come come in. And the greater the interest in that, which is what brought me to the monastery, 
the greater the interest in that, it's actually a lot easier to let go. It's a lot easier to renounce because one's senses of one's life somehow different from what I've been told. Somehow it's different from what we've all been from what we've all been told. And the renunciation, I find, and others do as well, I'm sure, actually still keeps continuing because renunciation is belongs to the truth as well. Life is constantly renouncing itself. Look at the cycles, look at the seasons, look at birth and death. So that renunciation still keeps going on. There's one who's a small servant of the Dharma. Plenty of things, day in and day out, where one's renouncing. Those of you engaged in service, constantly having to renounce other things to engage in service. So the renunciation is still going on. It doesn't like stop when one, when one goes into the monastery. It doesn't stop when one goes into the retreat. And so the spirit of liberation, renunciation and truth are a constant unfoldment for us. And there's something vital and beautiful about it. And we, and we honour life through it. Because it's true. Yes, question. Please, yes. Uh, Mr. Lyne, sorry. Add on, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Dharma teachings, our relationship to the world is uh, one of attending to objects, everyday world. Sight, object. Sound is an object. Smell is an object. Taste is an object. Touch is an object. And therefore there are these five uh, senses. What we often forget, however, is that thought is an object as well. It's an object of interest. It's an object of attention. 
it's an object which pulls consciousness towards it. And therefore there is the arising not only of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, but there's also the uh, arising of thought. Sometimes, as you point out, thought can have a very personal context to it, or seemingly personal. We can be thinking about ourselves, we can be thinking about our memories, our plans, and our storyline, etc. And therefore, the self, the I, and the thought, working together, there is the witnessing of it taking place, time, and there's a personal story. There is, uh, and sometimes we recognize intuitively there's no point in thinking about this anymore. There's no point in getting into thinking about it, etc. Therefore it requires from us in such times a certain power of the mind, power of mindfulness, the power of samadhi, the power of understanding, to be able to let go of thinking. Because the wisdom tells us, the intuition tells us, there is no point in thinking more about this, whatever it might be. Then, as has been as we've explored a little bit over our days together, there is thought, when used in its very positive light, when used as a helpful resource, the word then becomes vitikapichara. In other words, it becomes reflection. The reflection, clear reflection, can give us insight into the personal thinking, but also clear and skillful reflection can really help us to gain some uh, insight and understanding about all matter of things of life. We could reflect on impermanence, nothing personal about it. It just goes on hither and thither, and to understand it. We could uh, uh, reflect on uh, ego and its manifestations. We could reflect on um, love and kindness and compassion. We could uh, uh, reflect on the suffering which is in this world, etc. So we could re- uh, reflect on the many of the deeper things of life. So then the thought is not to be gotten rid of 24 hours a day. It would be a great pity, and if we want that, that there are surgeons around, have a quick lobotomy, no problem, problem over. No, it's wisdom that counts. And the wisdom that counts is the skillful use of thought. When it's used skillfully, we change the language to make it clearer. We call it reflection. And in quiet and calm uh, reflection, it can directly contribute to a great deal of helpful, healthy uh, understanding there. Especially if there's calmness inside, contentment inside, peace of mind inside, happiness inside. It really does help a a great deal. So, that's when (coughs) the reflection is an object of interest with a clear intention towards, let's say, understanding but it's still an object. What is an object is still limited. What is an object, including beautiful reflection, is still subjected to arising and passing. What is an object still requires various conditions, consciousness, energy, interest, 
for it to arise, it's still an object of interest. What's revealing it? What's enlightenment? What's making all this possible? Then, begin to sense. How can the object the object reveals itself, it shows itself, but it shows itself by something other than itself. I am not the thinker. I am not the thinker. It shows itself by other than itself. What's the nature of that? Thought can't go there. Thought can't make that journey. Because thought will always, even the most beautiful, sweet, reflective thought of life, will always be an object. It will always be something that one attends to. It cannot go to that which attends. Therefore we say, we love thought. We love the power of reflection. We love the great insight and understanding and benefits that can come from an intelligent life through the skillful use of reflection there. But we don't say the object is the truth. Then we have to quietly say thank you for thought. Very helpful. Au revoir. <laughs> and still have it when we need it. Still have it as a resource. But not to confuse it. It's just an object of interest. Why not? Same like sights and sounds, smells, taste and touch. If it was a problem, if all that was a problem, better. But the truth, it was a real problem, better take out your eyes, cut off your ears, cut off your tongue, cut off your fingers and your senses there, cut off the mind. If, if, if that, if it was a problem to know the truth, real problem, then it'd be better to cut it all off. There's other problems. None of this can, this world, what's going on can hide truth. Right, anyone else? Got more hands going quickly. Yes, please, yes. Just one. All right. All right. The other day, you said that you have to pass the prison after you said it, as if you were making a metaphor for the chicken. Oh, I see. No. So I think about the prison this morning because I was walking up on the hill. Yeah. I could hear the electronic voice in there. Yeah. Yeah. The question is, with regard to the nearby prison, is it possible to take the teachings to the prison? Um, some of us used to do um, prison visiting, and there's actually, in the Dharma world, a, 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 a network of people who are, uh, love the Dharma and go to the prison uh, there. And uh, Stephen uh, Batchelor who uh, was one of our guiding teachers here, but has now moved with Martine, his wife, to uh, France, um, went every week to, to the prison. The problem and the difficulty is uh, not with the inmates uh, at all, but it's with the authorities, the prison authorities. And the major problem is that they only want prison visitors to see one person at a time. 
and therefore it's very much dependent uh, on that uh, prisoner. When we, many years ago, 20 years ago, when we were in Maidstone, my, uh, myself with the assistant governor used to me- meet with um, 20 men every week who were doing a life sentence. And we had a two-hour meeting with them, just looking into what it is to be in this prison environment, uh, where the suffering is, what there are other ways of looking at it, more or less like you do here, but in a dialogue form, primarily. Unfortunately, there is a kind of very unenlightened, I would say, uh, prison administration. And if it was a little bit more aware, it would appreciate and see that uh, teachings and practices could be a tremendous resource for men and women having to spend short or long time in prison. But the prison service doesn't want that, doesn't encourage that, and it very, very rarely happens. They might less in as a TM or Transcendental Meditation, one or two places, etc. But there's not a thoughtful and progressive uh, uh, attitude, and it's a great place. Yes, please. Um, I wanted to ask, and then the doctor said, Marty, and the Pardon? And I about you talk with three teachers yeah. about Samadhi and Vipassana. Yeah. yeah? And, and I Is, is, is it what? A, a, a trend, a way of thinking. Way of thinking. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because it's much more Yeah. So, just on the first, when um, going to uh, different teachers, and sometimes, as uh, others know as well, very easy to get different perceptions and different views on uh, these uh, issues. Either, if one's got some, feels one's some inner authority through one's time of practice, then the element of self-reliance becomes a little bit more important. So in other words, one listens well and attentively to what the teacher or teachers say. Is it in a, a accordance, in harmony with one's own experience. Final judge, it would be one's own experience, always, every time. So if your experience is that there is a harmony of samadhi, the sense of well-being and uh, uh, depth and focus, single-pointedness, etc., with vipassana, that means uh, insight, wonderful and well good and take notice of it. Some other teachers, as you point out, and I agree, do 
and I think uh, tends to make a rather strong division between the two. And and I think from the standpoint of uh, direct Dharma teaching, there can be some misunderstanding. (coughs) What I mean, mean is the word vipassana has no reference really to method and technique. The word vipassana means uh, insight. And so as you just said a few months ago, the primary intention may be to develop more samadhi. To some degree we've been exploring that as well. But it's not as though the samadhi has the power to stop insight from arising, to stop vipassana from insight from arising. And it's not as though just doing vipassana will, just insight, will block any samadhi. Also, it doesn't have that there. So, we see through our own experiences what contributes to deepening of samadhi. We see through our own experience what contributes to uh, 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 insight. And just sometimes there's a little bit more preference on the samadhi side and sometimes there's a little bit more preference on the insight side and the tradition of acknowledging you know, the Buddhist teachings have certainly acknowledged that and then we see through our experience what's working well for us what's, what's really helpful and hopefully here I certainly hope people have some experience of what samadhi is to be present centered and grounded, have some uh, insight and understanding which is uh, uh, coming and uh, appreciate the great value and importance of both. So, not necessary to drive, as you point out, a line between the two. Okay, yes, please. Yeah, yeah? Um, I'm not sure I interpret it properly. But um, you mentioned something about happiness and, and vulnerability and the interconnectivity. Yeah. I wonder if you could expand on that a bit more. Yeah, sure, sure. Yes, yeah, an important uh, point, and uh, a few of you have uh, um, mentioned it uh, to me, a few, two or three notes about it uh, as well. And this is, I think, it's rather important, an important point here. It's like. With um, the heart and awareness, when both are, are uh, working together, we are more aware and there is more heartfulness with our awareness, we are also much more receptive. And that sense of inner openness and being more receptive does allow the opportunity for the spark of uh, happiness to come and lots of things which normally we didn't notice we're in a kind of dull mind state or we're thinking too much about something or we're driven about what we've got to do, etc. And in our awareness and uh, receptivity and openness there's more heartfulness and and, and more things that touch us, we respond to. And that helps to act as a spur, as a, as a trigger for the happiness. But, we're also more vulnerable as well, because the heart's open. 
and that goes with the ballpark. So that openness could be, and in being more open, we're more open to some of the more difficult things that go on inside of us, because we're more open to it. It's not like an open awareness and heartfulness can say, well, I think from my heart, I'll just have all the good things come up and arise, and um, I'll only be open, but not too far. I'll just keep it like this. We can't do it in a life will just laugh its head off at such an effort. And, um, and back will come the cruise missiles. So, the openness has a vulnerability. It's not only is it a vulnerability to what's inner, but there's a bit more, there's definitely more vulnerability to outer. If we're more open and less frozen and less closed down, then unkind words can be said. Um, um, there may be some doubts about some of the things that we're doing, the way we're using our time, etc., etc. Uh, we may feel a little bit more vulnerable because because the awareness and the receptivity is more there. We're a bit more closer to things, and the impact of that something seems to have a stronger impact than they used to. Difficult things. It's not that they're actually having a stronger impact, it's just that there are less filters, there are less defense systems, there's less control, there's less closing down. So, it isn't an easy thing for us to take some risk, to bring heartfulness, to bring an open and expansive awareness, and embrace the, the joy, and feel some vulnerability. Sometimes the vulnerability in its fear mode, is showing itself, experience this openness, experience this expansive uh, receptivity, but I'm afraid to lose it. I'm afraid it won't last. I'm uh, afraid I'll go back to the old way. And those kind of expressions is the vulnerability. It is vulnerable. But then the fear comes in as a confirmation of the vulnerability. And, the, and rather, like um, uh, that lovely uh, Afghani poet uh, Rumi says, whatever comes to us, whatever it is, regard all as a guest. Happiness comes. Oh, comes. Okay. Depression comes. Guest stays around a bit longer perhaps. Well, it's a guest. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And uh, worry comes, or another guest has come, and just allow. Well, the guest come, comes and goes, and, and all of us who ever have any guests, <laughs> especially the relatives, all oh, the relatives come, and it's nice to have you, and happy to say goodbye. <laughs> so sometimes have to have uh, this as well, that's part of the vulnerability. We're not closing down, we're taking the risk, we're being open to life, and when greater wisdom comes, when more understanding comes, there is greater steadiness uh, there, and the joy is the predominant. And uh, the feeling of uh, fear, and those kind of vulnerabilities in that form, just seems much, much less, much, much less real. Yes, anyone please. Yes. The black hair before the grey hair. Oh, you're pointing to him. Oh, I see. All right. Okay. Yes, sir. 
Yeah, yeah. That's it. It's enough. I have a wonder sometimes in meditation, parts of the body make the hands, make the hands, the arms, or people, the legs, or the shoulders, may make some erratic movement. Yes. Yes. No, right. Yes, I've experienced good first-hand experience with these things, and also Kind of movement of the body involuntarily. 
and that can manifest and it's just working itself out and doesn't resist it and doesn't make a, a problem out of it just allows it to take place sometimes it's much stronger much stronger and that kind of uh, movement which is going on is too big a contrast to the sitting so then we may well need to come out of the sitting posture wisdom comes first not the shape of the body and just give the opportunity in one's room or outdoors for the energy to flow in any way that it likes to go no control over it no being the doer no trying to just let it go wherever it, it may go and all that kind of freestyle um, movement without any form or shape to it can let the energy flow much more easily and freely when it's really, that may take hours it may take doing that as one's practice day in and day out when it harmonizes through then a person is able to come back and sit the difficulty that some of us have as teachers is that some people have been told sit through it there's too much control it could be vipassana, it could be zen it could be in uh, yoga, etc. There's too much control. A person's pushing their body too hard. And then the body ends up in a pattern of shaking. And it hasn't been unusual, unfortunately, for a person to turn up on a retreat <coughs> and, and there's a shake. And the body's involuntarily moving again, again and again. And it could be because too much pressure was put on the, in the past and the, uh, and the body is <coughs> revibrating a little bit with the memory usually lots of movement, free expression um, allowing this energy to unfold helps the harmony to come back in and occasionally sometimes this is just the condition of the body some people just sit and have involuntary movement wow, is it such a big event? The body is moving involuntary. Does the mind have to get worried about it? No. All right, one more, then we'll call it a day. Yes, please. Yes. Um, I have a rather personal question, and I think uh, the answer can often be quite individual, but yes. I'm looking for um, the meaning of true love, and um, I ask myself, any answer in Buddhism? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> 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 Can I ask a question back? <laughs> you don't have to answer. It's an important question. It's worth... Um, dwelling on, meditating on can I ask is there any kind of uh, background or special interest or focus behind the question um, 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 we are talking a lot about love and you hear a lot about love everywhere and yes. um, I was just asking myself if I have experience or if I know what true love is yes. 
that I Yes. No. Wonderful. Excellent. Excellent. I hope you never do. I think let's just say if you found an answer, I can ask. Can I ask another question? <laughs> if you found an answer, let's say you, you, you listened to a teacher, you read a book or a poem or whatever, or whatever, you found, found you say, what is real love? What is uh, true love? And then you found an, uh, an answer. Do you think that would really be helpful? Would it really make a difference if you had an answer to what is true love? It is important. I agree. I'm 110% with you. It is, it is uh, uh, deeply important. What, is, what might... Ask another question. I'm, I'm, I'm into inquiry mode. I'm sorry about this. But anyway. Could there be a value in not having an answer? Just having the question. Do you know the poet Rilke? Do you know the poet Rilke? R- yeah, yeah. He wrote some letters to a young poet. Beautiful. Transcendentally deep and beautiful. He says to the young poet, Live your question. Live your question. Don't be concerned with the answer. Live your question. So what would it be to live the, your question? It's a beautiful question. What is real love? What would it be to live this question? I'm avoiding the answer. I'm trying to do it skillfully, but you know, <laughs> but you don't notice. <laughs> it is such a beautiful question that so beautiful. I don't think any answer is going to match it. So I somehow you. I don't know if you would find the answer in somebody else's words or um, in a book. It may bring some inspiration. It's beautiful. It may said help to open up. It may help to keep the question alive. So, such a lovely question. Let's uh, have a quiet minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.